Hey tennis fans and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. Another great week of tennis and Mike, we have another fantastic Canadian storyline. 18-year-old Montreal native Leila Fernandez won her first career WTA title in Mexico, winning the Monterey Open, defeating Victoria Golovich in the finals. And what a special week it was for Leila. Didn't drop a set along the way and, you know, I was reflecting, I guess, during her run, how great she played in Mexico the previous year. And for her to take it one step further uh, this season is is really incredible. Yeah, fantastic result. Uh, First career WTA title, like you mentioned, for Layla Annie. And a great result for Canadian tennis and Canadian sports as well. We've we've made it to the finals a couple of times already in uh, in 2021, but this is the first uh, Canadian title. Um, And for Layla Annie at just 18 years old, another big step forward in her progression as a professional tennis player. And I was looking back through all the times that we've spoken with Layla Annie, and she's actually, I I mean, you're aware of this, the number one guest that we've had in terms of frequency on the podcast already, because we've talked to her so many times. And just every time we've talked to her, Ben, it seems like she's crossing off another item on her list of things to do as a WTA player. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, This is kind of what I actually wrote about. I wrote a a piece for Sportsnet on Layla and this victory and called it sort of building blocks and sort of a foundation that she's been laying on. And it's been a steady ascent and progression for her. You know, we we talked, I remember you spoke with her actually after she won that French Open junior singles title. And that was, I, I believe we're going back two years. And yeah, it's, not quite two years ago. Yeah, and it, it's honestly incredible to me how much she's grown up since then. And then at the same time, in the same breath, how mature she already was at that point at just 16 years of age and now just 18. And, and you know, she, she looks her age, um, but the way she plays, I, I feel like her poise and maturity is of a player much, much older. She's so focused, and I mean, obviously the talent on the court is is pretty evident and people are catching on to what that's all about. But off the court, like you said, just that poise and maturity and her focus. And uh, when I saw her win her quarterfinal match here in Monterey, you know, and afterwards there was no celebration, there was no smile, uh, no big fist pump or anything like that. It was such a subdued reaction. And to me, that's because she's just so focused on hey, quarterfinals at this point or making the semifinals is not enough. That's not satisfying, you know, the hunger she has in terms of what she wants to attain as a, as a pro tennis player. And finally, obviously, after beating um, her opponent in the, in the finals, we saw the, the, you know, the guard came down and she could enjoy the moment. But up until that point, boy, what focus from this 18-year-old. She wants big things and she's not afraid to say so. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I thought one of her telling quotes, at least in the press conference afterwards, was just focusing on the present moment, as as you mentioned. And that's maybe why we saw some of those muted celebrations throughout the week. She was very present every shot, every point. She wasn't looking ahead. She wasn't thinking back to the past where, oh, like, what did I do wrong in this game? And and it was the same way in that final. And, you know, the final against Golubic, she raced out to this five-love lead um, and to me, the, the telling moment actually came in the very first game of the first set because it was a lengthy deuce game. Golubich was, you know, trying to disrupt her rhythm. Layla's trying to hang tough against the baseline and take everything early. And uh, Layla saved a couple break points early on, gets the hold. And after that, she really, really promptly took over. And I think that gave her so much confidence uh, to, to believe she could, you know, close out this final and do so in straight sets. 
Absolutely. And speaking of confidence, she definitely drew a lot of confidence from her experience a year ago in Mexico. Um, you know, it's too bad there aren't more tournaments in Mexico because she seems to play her best there. You know, she fell to Heather Watson a year ago in Acapulco in a tough three-set match. And when I spoke to her last night in the post-match press conference, she talked about how she was using that as fuel for this year and how she was taking the, um, you know, she wasn't afraid to say the, the disappointment from last year's result and, uh, and learn from that experience. So um, why don't we listen briefly to what Leila Annie had to say after her maiden WTA title in Monterey. Uh, these are her comments from, uh, from press last night. Leila, congratulations on the uh, big victory. Um, I'm wondering how much your loss in the finals last year in Acapulco um, factored into sort of the learning experience and learning curve and, and what you took from that in order to put into place today to, uh, to get that victory. It definitely played a big factor. Uh, you know, before before the match, I was talking with my dad, and I just remembered all the emotions that I felt last year. How I just felt like, let's not say regret, but kind of like a little bit of disappointment. Uh, but he just told me to use those emotions as fuel for for today, and I did. Yeah, it's it's interesting uh, that you know she clearly remembers the final prior. It was on her mind, but I think in the right frame of mind, you know, she's, she's not applying too much extra pressure on herself because she's thinking, Oh, I'm in a final and I didn't win my first one. I have to win this one. I don't think she was treating it that way. She was treating it more like here, my, here were my experiences from that first final in Acapulco. Here's what I have to do a little bit differently. Obviously the setting is different. The opponent is different. Um, but you know, she, she accepted the challenge, I think in the perfect way. And, uh, yeah, to already be learning from lost finals at such a young age shows her, her growth. And we're just seeing like a very steady ascent, as I said, from Layla, who now is within the top 70 already. And she's not going to surprise anyone anymore at this point. No. And uh, I think she's making a name for herself. And But it reminds me of, of when I spoke with her earlier this year at the Australian Open, and she had talked about how she had been turned down by so many players who she wanted to play doubles with. And I found it almost sad to to hear her talk about how she had thrown the net out there and and hardly anyone got back to her with a, with a positive response. Well, now with the results on the singles field and the fact that she did make the third round in doubles as well in Melbourne, uh, I don't think people are going to be turning Leila Annie Fernandez down anymore when she comes calling, because this is clearly one of the bright young talents on the WTA and, and someone that uh, is definitely making her mark. And, uh, you know, she said that she wanted to make top 10 by the end of the year. That's definitely a lofty goal, but one that she says with all seriousness and uh, the way she played in Monterey this week, uh, who knows if that's going to happen, but she's definitely going to get closer than her current uh, top 70 by the end of 2021 in my mind. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, the finalist that she defeated, Victoria Golubich, is, is 10 years older than her, 28, and actually has had a great start to the season herself. She won an ITF event. She was in the finals of another ITF. And uh, here she is getting to the finals of a WTA 250. It, it is nice to be seeing WTA 250, 500. I think so much more clarity for everybody who likes to follow the sport. Um, so obviously she's playing quality tennis and she'll move up to, I believe, 80th in the rankings and uh, had the chance to speak with her after the match as well. And I, I brought up the fact actually that uh, Layla set a goal for top 10 for the end of the season. And um, Golovich was maybe a little taken aback by that, um, but she was also 
so impressed with Layla's maturity at her age and just wanted to play back the clip of, of her answer to my question uh, about Layla's goals and where she can make it in the sport. Obviously, you're you're very experienced on the tour and have played a long time. And uh, I'm just curious because Layla Fernandez is just 18 years old. How how far do you think she can she can reach uh, in the game on the WTA? I know she set a goal this year to see if she can try and reach the top 10. This year, yeah, she did. She did try, which is obviously a big goal. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's great to have big goals and everything. And I think she is, uh, you know, very, very mature for her age. If I, let's say, if I uh, compare her to, to myself, you know, also physically, uh, mentally at that age, uh, I was actually far away from her. Um, and, well, she has, you know, great potential, and she plays well. Um, and I think, you know, the thing is on tour that, you know, many, many of the players play well. <laughs> so, and there are a lot of new ones always coming up with potential. You know, I can feel it uh, on myself too. Like I, I've always also been uh, talented, but still there is kind of, the tour is kind of a mar marathon, you know, like you have to find a way to, first of all, be fit and also perform well from week to week and then from year to year to year. So she hasn't experienced that yet, uh, but I'm sure she has a team which can help her, uh, you know, to build on that. So there you have it. That's uh, Victoria Golovich, the finalist uh, at the Monterey Open. And uh, as she's kind of alluding to there, Layla already having the maturity that she does have at the age of 18, it sounded like Golovich was envious in a way. She said like, oh, if only I could like see the game through that lens when I was that age. She was certainly like a little further in that progression. And it always feels that way when, when I watch Layla Fernandez. You, you don't see or witness any type of emotional roller coaster that we see from many players on both ends of the tours of all ages. And Layla has always been just kind of the steady rock. You know what you're getting from him, from her in terms of body language any given day. I can't quite imagine her smashing a racket or having some sort of a meltdown on the court. Certainly not. No, it's just, hard to envision. I don't think that's in her character. Uh, one other thing is, boy, does she play well against Swiss players in big moments. I'm thinking back, obviously, this one against Golovich, but also uh, about a year ago in Fed Cup when she had that huge win over Belinda Bencic. And I think that was a real eye-opener for a lot of people uh, in the tennis world, both here in Canada and, uh, and internationally speaking, uh, in terms of that big win. So... Yeah, I think if uh, Leila Annie could play more Swiss players and more matches in Mexico, I think she'd be top 10 by this summer at this rate. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. And um, I, I think now that she's, again, making that leap in the rankings, we're going to see her steadily at the Masters 1000s, competing at the 500 level. But now she's where she's at a point, I think, when she's playing a WTA 250, these lower level events, that she is one of the favorites to win. And after she won her first match or two, I was... I was taking a look at the draw closely and I was thinking like Layla has a great shot at this and uh, to do that without dropping a set um, is, you know, a testament to, to the level she's playing right now to the trouble she gives other opponents. And it feels odd almost now that we're making the turn for the Miami open that she actually has to go through qualifying. It feels like she should be in the main draw already, honestly. Yeah, and boy, does she ever have to get there quickly because uh, as soon as the match ended uh, last night in, uh, in Monterey, 
boy, she was into press so quickly. We got that text message from the WTA saying Layla's going to be in there in five minutes. And normally that's not the case um, because there's, you know, cool down and perhaps a little physio, what have you. Um, you know, some players got to fix their hair, whatever, look their best for the press conference, uh, maybe do some TV hits first. But no, she was right in there because she had to hop on a plane and get all the way over to Miami where she's playing uh, Monday, uh, depending on when you're listening to this, but Monday to have her first qualifying match against Buzernescu. So no rest for Layla Annie. And regardless of how that first qualifying match goes, um, you know, big steps in the right direction and looking forward to seeing what she can do and, and looking forward to getting her back on the pod again soon as well to talk about the uh, early season successes she's had here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada, also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. And we uh, should stay on the WTA side, as I mentioned, the Miami Open happening. Um, I think this is certainly a case where if you're looking on, on the two fields, women's and men's, I am so much more inclined to follow closely what will transpire on the women's side because, you know, we had a massive withdrawals on the men's. We'll get to that later. Uh, but for the women's field, we have plenty of great players here and Ash Barty still holding on to that number one ranking for now. Um, due in part, of course, because of the protective ranking system, but uh, certainly a threat. She played well at the front end of the season, going deep at the Australian Open here, and uh, we'll see her back in action. Then, of course, the big storyline, Canadian-wise, you know, hopefully we're not feeling too much stress after she pulled out of a couple events. Bianca Andreescu, she's been posting about the fact that she is back in Miami and, and ready to play again. Yeah, so just to go uh, back to the start here in terms of the, the women's draw, it's a super deep field, clearly. Uh, at the time we're recording, we don't have the men's singles draw yet. But as we look at the women's, it's just littered with previous winners. And uh, I just want to talk about that for a second, because you've got Venus Williams, Svetlana Kuznetsova, Victoria Azarenka, Joe Conta, Sloan Stevens, Ash Barty, who you just mentioned. And if you go back and you look at the years that some of these players won this event, Venus Williams, 1998, 1999, and 2001. The last of her three triumphs there was 20 years ago already. And I was looking at a picture on Twitter. I forget who posted it this morning, but it was a picture of a young Venus and Serena when they were still kids with former American president, Ronald Reagan, uh, who was president <laughs> wow. from like 1980 to 1988, if my memory serves correctly. Uh, he's passed away several years ago now. So it just shows you how long the Williams sisters have been playing tennis for when you go back and you see a picture like that, that seems like it belongs in some history book. <laughs> um, and, and just the, the length of time since Venus first won here in Miami, let alone her last win 20 years ago, remarkable that she's still at it. Azarenko's run, won the tournament three times as well. So, you know, so many fantastic former champions in the draw, yeah. uh, along with a host of players like Bianca who are looking to, uh, to win it for the first time as well. Yeah, certainly. And, and just to touch on Bianca, I think this is certainly the start you want getting back into it after, of course, playing Australian Open two matches there and then making a bit of a run staying in Australia, playing in Adelaide, making a semifinal is that she does get the bye because she's seated eighth and then she'll either face a Shvedova or a qualifier in her first match, which I say is 
probably a pretty welcome reprieve for her that that she hasn't doesn't have to face necessarily like a, a big time gun. I mean, hopefully that qualifier isn't Layla Fernandez. Yeah, Christ. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but you're not going to ask for it. You're not going to get a better uh, start. You know, Definitely. no offense to Stradova. Yeah. Uh, after that, it will get trickier. But you could say that for anyone at any position in the draw, because then Bianca in the third round could face Amanda Nisimova or Sloane Stevens. Yeah. And uh, Garbina Muguruza is a possible quarterfinal opponent as well. So things are going to get uh, get difficult fairly quickly if Bianca uh, proceeds. She's four and two on the year, which isn't bad for somebody who missed 15 months of action. We have to remember that fact. And uh, yeah, hopefully fit and healthy and, and ready to go here. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we, we have all the all the players who have been playing the best tennis uh, of the year here. We have all the top players in the women's field. And it's interesting. You look at the seeding and the names that are coming to mind for me, like beyond an Osaka, of course, who won the Australian Open. Names that come to mind for me who are playing the best tennis of the year are your Muguruza's Jennifer Brady playing great. And then you look and there's there's a number 12 next to Muguruza's name. There's a number 13 next to finalist Jennifer Brady's name, uh, which is testament to, of course, how deep the field is. Um, and the fact that some of these players who are red hot still have not like broken that high in the rankings. American Jessica Pagula, she's been on fire this season. She's just seated number 29. So you go down the list of all these seated players. There are a lot of players who I think could realistically win this tournament. And, and there's going to be a lot of interesting movement once sort of that ranking freeze is finally lifted mm. and uh, things sort of even out. I know there's been a lot of discussion, a lot of criticism lately about just how long the rankings have been frozen for. You know, points are going to start dropping off for a lot of players. And I think we're going to see some big swings up and down. Yeah. Um, and so that'll be interesting once sort of the, uh, you know, the gates are lifted and, and we see exactly how things settle beyond that moment. Yeah, certainly. Uh, Iga Spiontek, I should mention, also in the draw. Arena Sampalenka, be curious to see her. And uh, we haven't seen Naomi Osaka play either uh, since winning that Australian Open title. Feels like she is the number one player in the world in terms of the level she's played at since the return of the COVID hiatus. But uh, as you mentioned, currently with the uh, rankings freeze, that is not the case. Doubles action, I believe we will have uh, Ottawa's Gabby Dabrowski. And also, interestingly enough, She's in the singles qualifying draw as well. Yeah, it's one of those rare appearances for Gabby in singles. Uh, she's going up against 20-year-old Varvara Gracheva. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that or correctly or not, but from Russia, who's ranked 99th in the world, seated six in the qualies draw. And I mean, Gabby's mentioned to us before, she gets a lot of enjoyment out of playing singles, and she's always eager to test herself to see how she still holds up in that level of competition. Uh, if it weren't for the fact that she's so darn successful in doubles, um, you know, that's her bread and butter and she brings home a lot of ranking points and she's one of the best, you know, top 10 doubles players in the world, both in women's doubles and mixed. Uh, so if that wasn't her moneymaker, I'm sure we'd see her more often in singles, but she does definitely have that, uh, I don't want to say curiosity, but uh, she likes to challenge herself and, and get out there and play singles when possible as well. We will move on to the men's side of the tour and discuss everything happening on the ATP side. We do have a guest this week, one of our favorites, joined by UK tennis journalist George Belshaw of Metro UK. Uh, George, thanks so much uh, for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Always a pleasure. George, I was looking. This is now your third year in a row of appearing on Matchpoint Canada, and not too many of our guests can say that. I mean, first of all, it's only our third year of existence. So, you know, by that <laughs> virtue, that excludes a lot of options so far. But we do appreciate you always answering the bell when we uh, when we give you a shout. So it's great to have you back with us today. 
no problem. Who are the others who've made it to three years in a row? Oh my goodness. Good um, question. Maybe. I mean, there's been a lot of athletes, right? Like we just said earlier, Layla Annie's been on with us like seven or eight times already. And, and that number is only going to continue to grow. Yeah. A couple um, other consistents, I would say like Nick McCarville and Blair Hen- Henley have been regulars. So yeah. Yeah. It's nice to bring back uh, familiar faces and uh, we will chat on the men's side and, you know, we're basically through, what I would say the first quarter of the season. And I wanted to look back on what we saw happen in Dubai because I was watching throughout the week Aslan Karatsev play. And of, of course, you know, we were discussing him at the front end of the season in the Australian Open. First learning about him, then making sense of this semifinals run that he produced in Melbourne. And then just the, the tennis that I, I witnessed him play in Dubai beats Andre Rublev to get to the finals. And suddenly he's hoisting a trophy winning his first career ATP title. He's emerged inside the top 30. What do you make of his run, the tennis he's able to play, and if it's something that is sustainable? Well, I mean, it's an amazing run to start with. I mean, like, when I start thinking about, like, Karatsev's rise this year and, like, how much I knew about him last year, you know, I, I was aware he was doing some stuff in challenges, and you, you know, you do get a bit of a, a kind of a breast of what's going on at that level. You know, I'm, I'm not sitting around watching it all the time because there's so much high top level tennis all the time that you can't really watch everything that's going on. But you do see names who are doing well mm-hmm. and you're thinking, OK. And, I, you know, you're looking at his name and you're thinking, right, this guy's 27. You know, that that's OK. He's doing well at challenges, but he's taking his time to do that well. Right. Um, right. So then you're kind of like, all right. I'm going to keep an eye on this guy starter this year, see what happens, see him do well in qualifying in the Australian Open. And you think, okay, got a decent little draw at the Australian Open first couple of rounds. Um, and you, we did like a fantasy tennis on our podcast. And, you know, a lot of people are picking this guy um, for that, which actually ended up screwing the whole thing for anyone <laughs> who didn't pick him, really, um, myself included. Um, but I mean, it, it was a crazy run in Australia. Um, and, even then you're kind of like, right, this does happen occasionally, right? You do get a time where people have been playing really well, particularly for someone like Karatsev, who realistically most of the tour aren't going to have seen that much of at that point. You you do get kind of figured out quite quickly. Mm -hmm. And the manner of the semi-final defeat to Novak, I kind of was thinking, right, you know, that that's his ceiling. He's someone who can play up pretty well, maybe get like top 50, good top 30 player maybe but you know can he back this up and actually produce these results consistently I don't know now he's picked up a title and you're starting to think all right maybe this guy's gonna just carry on and carry on um I I I find it so hard to really quantify what he's changed and you know this is partly because okay I think he had a few injuries um but even so, not like we're not talking about someone like Del Potro, who's had, you know, something so terrible happen mm. to him all his career. He had like one little stint out, but it wasn't like he was knocking on the door massively before that. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's a crazy, crazy rise. I guess we can put it down to a bit of pandemic um, kind of change, you know, maybe just like that perspective, that focus was put in for him that he realized I need to put in that extra work. I, I don't know. I, I I've not heard him speak explicitly on what he feels he's necessarily changed. I know he's been asked a lot, but he he's never like really spelled it out. So right. it's kind of a bit of a mystery, I think. Um, 
a, a good mystery, hopefully, but uh, it, it's a mystery nonetheless. And it'd be interesting. I mean, you know, you mentioned some of the names he's beating this week. You know, Dan Evans gave Federer a pretty good match last week. Has generally done pretty well outside of slams for the last couple of years. He's a solid top 30 player. Yannick Sinner, as we all know, is someone we're all really excited about. Like we think this guy is a future world number one, almost nailed on, I'd say. Um, and Andre Rublev's been like unbeatable at this level for so long. So, you know, it's not like he just got a good draw and kind of eased his way through. He's beaten top guys. So, yeah, full credit to him. And it's, it's one of the biggest storylines of the year. I mean, who knows where it's going to go? I think we've all learned a good lesson here in terms of underestimating people and, and you know, being quick perhaps in the media to dismiss one good run when there could be a follow-up to it, right? Like I was already kind of making comparisons to Checanato a couple of years ago with the French. Well, that's kind of, you know, foolish of me to do so. And, and uh, you know, I think, Ben, maybe we should thank Sergei Stokowski for uh, putting us in our place. And in, in particular, <laughs> you know, right. having that little exchange with you on Twitter about mm-hmm. uh, we need to know our top 200 players a little bit better. So uh, we're going to do a lot more homework outside of the top 100 this year so that we can predict the next uh, Karatsa before he or she comes along. Um, George, the last time we had you on, and it seems like forever ago because it was pre-pandemic, I believe it was our season preview episode for 2020. And I re-listened to it last night. And uh, you mentioned at the time you were looking forward to hopefully a slight changing of the guard in terms of the big three last year. And and I think you got your wish, um, certainly with Dominic Team winning the US Open and uh, and other players sort of stepping up in the absence of Federer and Nadal at times. Uh, how do you feel things are at now as uh, 2021 sort of gets going? And do you expect further change to be happening this year? Um, where again, the, the next gen, I, I don't feel we can use that term anymore, but that next grouping continues to push and, and have their moments this year. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think we were all kind of relieved to see like Dominic team have that breakthrough at the U S open. Um, I'm sure, you know, Djokovic and Nadal from Federer fans weren't that relieved but for the rest of us who kind of you you want that transition to happen while these guys are still playing you know not when they're on one leg at the end of their careers you know you do want them to beat them and okay team you know Novak went out in the most extraordinary circumstances imaginable uh, would he have beaten a fit and firing Novak there who knows you know that that's we can't ever say that but and Nadal didn't go but you know I, I would be backing team on a hard court these days, which is kind of where we want to get to, you know, you know, Novak is still the guy to beat on tour. There's, there's no question, but you want these guys, Medvedev, Sissipas team to be beating Rafa on hard. I would say that, that that's the level for where they should be looking at now um, because they're good hardcore players and Nadal isn't on Djokovic's level. You know, I'm not going to say they should walk into the clay court season and be beating Nadal on clay, although Dominic team, that's clearly the next big challenge for him now. Um, you know, his French Open was a, disappointing, really harsh to say that because he's just won the US Open. So, so, and they were so close together to then come straight through and expect to win. That was tough. But, you know, I think if he'd have had an extra week between those tournaments, it would have been a really, really interesting French Open for him to be facing Rafa because he was clearly so confident in his own ability there. Um, and Clay is clearly where he's most comfortable. So, you know, Nadal's so dominant on clay, but let's hope team can push him there and make that a bit more interesting as well. The grass, 
I don't know. I mean, I just think these young guys haven't got to grips with it yet. I mean, we've had it's a year. It's been so on. long since we've seen any grass court That's tennis, right. too, right? Yeah. But even before, I mean, like, that none of them, like, Sissipat says he loves playing on it, but he still doesn't look amazing yet. He's the one I expect to make that breakthrough first. Um, Medvedev can play, but can have bad matches. Zverev doesn't look comfortable. So I still kind of look to the old guard at Wimbledon. Like, I'm expecting. Novak is clear favourite for any slam that's not the French for me at the minute. Um, then, you know, Roger is a bit of an unknown at the moment, mm -hmm. but if he's fit and capable, you'd back him against everyone still on grass. And then obviously from a British perspective, it would be a miss for me not to say that <laughs> we want Andy Murray to kind of be in and around there. But I, I do think in all seriousness, the movement side of it, Murray is as good as Federer. Um on the grass specifically and the young guys haven't quite got that so if he can build up I would still give him a chance in a one-off match against these young guys so I'm probably taking a long-winded route of answering this but the big guys are still my favorites for the big tournaments but seeing as they're pulling out the masters and stuff and you know they're less interested in that and I'm expecting a lot more variety at those level of tournaments and you know we're seeing Medvedev and team Zverev getting to finals now I think Hopefully, one of them will win one of them this year, and then we can start the full transformation into post big for next season, maybe. Yeah, it's interesting. I was just thinking, as you mentioned, Danil Medvedev, um, and he's actually not that far behind Novak Djokovic in the rankings right now, sitting number two. And then you think about it, um, he still needs obviously work on clay, but he's he's won big clay matches before. And then I, I have no image of my head of him even playing on grass. Like I, I'm, I'm trying to remember him playing at Wimbledon because just it's been so long since we've seen it. Um, but but back to the Miami Open for a moment, you know, normally we're talking about this one as as one of the key hardcore Masters 1000s of the season for me, you know, maybe second biggest behind Indian Wells. And we have no big three there. Um, including Dominic Team also pulling out, Borna Chorich not there, Nick Kyrgios, we haven't seen him play since the Australian Open. I'm just curious from, from your vantage point, what do you think is the main factor um, leading to this decision of, of players pulling out of Miami? Is it for the big three, just kind of like, let's rest and try and peak for slams? Or is there something further maybe going on here? I, I think it's to be honest, the fact there's only one US tournament in this window. Right. I think to travel all that way in a pandemic to, you know, different continent just for two weeks, I think a lot of guys are kind of looking at their schedules like, mm, is it is it a bit too much hassle to be going kind of in and out just for like that small little um, time window? I think if Indian Wells was happening as well, you know, two Masters events, I think people would have, been more willing to make that trip. I mean, Rafa, look, it's no surprise, is it really? And he's not played Miami since what, 2016, I think. Um, yeah. So, you know, he was always going to focus on the clay. He's not played in anything else. Um, whether or not that's due to this back injury that he's saying it is, or whether it's just the reality that traveling around in a pandemic is not that ideal. Um, you know, and then Novak, again, he's kind of had an injury. He, he was probably. I thought he was the most likely to play, just given, you know, he's good on hard courts. He would fancy picking up a few more points. Um, particularly, as you mentioned, Medvedev there. I mean, if you look at their two, I, you know, for Novak, it's probably not that important to stay as number one now he's past he's, Federer. He's got but, the record. Yeah. Yep. Um, but, you know, it, 
let's just say for the sake of argument, he just wants to keep adding to that number of weeks and maybe like eyes a big round number like 350 or whatever or 400, you know, to kind of maintain against Medvedev at the minute, he needs to defend a lot of points over the clay and grass and Medvedev doesn't need to do a fat lot to kind of improve. He's really got no points to defend. Um, So if that was in the back of his mind, which, you know, I guess him pulling out of Miami shows that maybe it's not. Um, but I thought he might turn up and just, you know, get a few more points in the bank that he, he didn't have already. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, it's, I think we shouldn't necessarily take any decisions players are making this year as like a two broad strokes beyond the fact we're kind of mid-pandemic still. I think, you know, particularly for the top guys who've made so much money, they've got so many of these titles already. Um, I just think there's a bit of a question, right? Well, actually, would I rather spend time with my family? Who knows how long I'm going to have to be away? You know, I was speaking to um, Murray's fitness trainer, um, Matt Little, earlier in this year. You know, he's not been away with Murray since 2019 or something because of restrictions on how many people they're allowed to take. So, you know, for a lot of guys, they're not able to take their families with them either. And it's very specific, one coach and a physio or something. So, you know, it's it is a bit more strain on traveling that much around the world when you can't freely bring people with you, I think. Um, so I, I kind of think we just have to take that into account. And at the end of the day, it's one hard court tournament It's the end of the hard court season. Okay. Yeah. It's a massive tournament traditionally, but realistically, I think these guys are all kind of just mentally focused on having a better clay block. Yeah, I just wanted to, and, and Mike, you can jump in after this, point out a, a quote from Denis Shapovalov, who was uh, playing in Dubai, made the semifinals, and he was just asked about the withdrawals. And, and one thing I've always, always liked about Dennis is, is his honest answer is impressed. And he said, in a way, it's not motivating to play every week and play all of the big tournaments because there's not really a lot in it for us other than the slams at this point that are paying just as much or better like in Australia this year. So there's also kind of a pay issue going on. Uh, Certain players thinking like, okay, so already the travel alone going to a different continent, it's only a two week period of time just to play that one tournament. And then the pay is not the same. The atmosphere is not the same. It's obviously really taking out uh, some of the luster of what's normally like a a major, major event. Yeah. And look, I mean, I guess, for us guys, sometimes it's kind of a bit jarring to hear those comments. I wish people would pay me that much to go and cover Miami. Um, <laughs> That's but, true. Uh, one day, one day, George. <laughs> one day, you know, someone, someone's got to be doing it. But no, you know, it's it, it's obviously not a cheap sport. And if your costs are becoming harder to cover or whatever, and it's a bit more risky. But yeah, I mean, he's kind of tapped into a few of the things I said there, didn't he? I mean, like the length of time's not particularly long. Right. Uh, yeah, the pay is obviously a, a big factor. And, you know, I think, was it Gilles Simon who just said, I'm, I'm not playing during That's all right. this time? You know, Benoit Pair has been, I think, I actually think Benoit Pair has been like the most interesting case study in like all <laughs> pandemic sport recently. Like, I, I just find him fascinating at the minute. Like, I, I kind of feel sorry for him because, like, that, that's a weird, weird thing to say. I'm obviously not condoning all his behavior, but like, this is a guy who's clearly. If you know Benoit, like he loves like yeah external sides of life to tennis, shall we say? You know he mm-hmm. enjoys the social scene of traveling around and doing all this. And 
the joy, you know, that's obviously an incredibly privileged position to be in. But I think it's a bit of a microcosm of all of us, really, isn't it? You know, we've all had so many like nice things taken out of our life. You know, we're at the end of like a three month lockdown in, in the UK. And you know, we're hopefully, well, not hopefully, we are getting tennis for us to play next week. That is coming in on Monday. We've not been able to do that since December. Um, and, you know, it's a slightly different level, I suppose. But, you know, these guys are pretty much traveling to sit in hotel rooms for weeks on end, not able to go out. And, you know, I'm not saying all Benoit Pair does is want to go to bars and go boozing all the time. But, you know, th that is a side of his job he does enjoy. And we are yeah. all missing these kind of sides of life. And he's been quite honest about it. And, OK, his behavior is not how I would necessarily go about doing it. But it's interesting he keeps going as well because he, despite all these complaints, you know, Simon's just like, I'm not going. But yeah. <laughs> my pair's just like trudging on and becoming a walking disaster class. So I have a little bit of sympathy, but not too much, I suppose. <laughs> I want to uh, go back and talk about two guys you mentioned uh, earlier uh, in our chat here, and that's Federer and Murray. And I love how you use the term big four there. That's one, you kind of slipped that one in there casually. We, we haven't heard that term in quite some time, but I appreciate it. I think that speaks to your confidence perhaps in what Andy Murray still has left to offer. Um, just this past week, it was suggested on Twitter that the only way to keep Federer and Murray in the sport uh, was to switch to best to three, I believe at the slams. And um, I mean, as wonderful as it would be to see these two greats continue to play, I kind of personally think that's kind of borderline ridiculous to suggest making a sweeping change just for the sake of, you know, benefiting two individuals. What was your take when you heard uh, that, uh, that put out there in the, in the Twitterverse? Well, um, I, I actually was in quite a privileged position on this article because I'd read it long before it was published. Um, oh. I say long before, but like 24 hours before, which is a long time in the media um, because uh Simon Briggs, who writes his articles, uh, columns, excellent columns always. Um, he, he was actually just dropping me a message being like, have you got a column topic that I could do this week? I'm really struggling. I'm finding it hard to think of something in tennis. So we had a bit of a back and forth about stuff. He kind of brought that idea in its infancy. to me. I said to him, he should write one on Benoit Pair because I think he's a really interesting topic at the minute and you could do a quite a good comparison between real life and pair and he was keen for that but uh, unfortunately his desk were less keen so he went with the original idea um you know I, I think obviously the argument itself got watered down a bit on social media to being about just Federer and Murray and obviously you know there's a bit of a leap off when you do these sort of articles that you want people you know if you just write on the internet we want you know three four rounds of best of three and then three rounds of best of five people will be like okay why do i care so the, you got to uh, draw people in right there's got to be a bit of you know leading in i i i, I said to simon i mean I've, I've kind of said this thing before like I, I i like the idea of the women having the chance to play best of five i think that's the most important part of that argument and i also am aware that it's difficult to schedule a two-week slam if you turned all the women's matches to best of five so if you're looking for a kind of a round solution on that, then I think this is quite a good fit in terms of, you know, you can squeeze in a lot more matches if they're all best of three. You get rid of any risk of like an Isner Mahu third round, which has already been kind of mitigated by, you know, changes at the slams, you right. know, all their different kind of endings. But, um, you know, Isner Mahu aside, 
how many five setters do we see in the first few rounds that we think are the most memorable matches of all time? I think like the majority of the best five set matches, I would say come in the second week. That's not always true, but I would say that's, that's the rule rather than the exception. Um, so from a sporting perspective, I don't, and I mean sporting in terms of the percept, the wider public perception, I'm not sure you lose too much by taking the first week of the slam to just best of three. Um, I still think you'd get kind of the passive interest and still keep then the later stages of a slam where people are more tuned in to it being that full format of best of five. So I, 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 I'm not against the proposal. And I think, as I say, the main upswing for me is the fact that it gives the women the chance to play best of five, which, you know, a lot of them have said in the past. It's not a conversation that's actually, it doesn't come up as often as I would expect it to this conversation it kind of feels like it should be one of those things that comes every year but it, i'd say actually only really comes once every three or four years which i'm a bit surprised about um yep. maybe we'll bring it up again this year that could be, <laughs> that could be my next job i'd be interested to hear more from the women on this i mean i see a lot of um you know male tennis journalists sort of speaking to this but i haven't heard enough from the actual female tennis players of what they want and so i think this these are the questions now that we need to hear and hopefully at the Miami Open, they're thrown in there um, yeah. to get their take because maybe the majority of women don't want best of five, or maybe they do. But until I hear it, it's hard for me to kind of, you know, comment too much on it. Yeah. Sorry, go I was, ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, I mean, like when they've been put to them in the past before, it's definitely never been a hundred percent. We want this, you know, it's ne that's never quite been the case. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to tell you what the answers are for all, 128 players who could be in the first round of singles, whether they'd want to do that. I, 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 my gut feeling is most of them would be up for it. Um, I'd say about you know, plucking figures out of the sky. I'd probably imagine seven of 10 would probably be up for it. Um, but who knows? You're right. You know, and this is what I mean. Like the conversation needs to happen more often and readily with them. And I'm surprised it hasn't happened i mean obviously we've been in a bit of kind of pandemic life anyway which so there's been different conversations to have uh, that have been less tennis focused but as we move towards more normality it'll be interesting to see if if there is more clamor for it yeah and uh it's certainly for me I, I think in the best of five thought just what's always on my mind and and where we lose some quality sometimes is really a conditioning endurance an endurance issue, I think, sometimes that we, we witness in the men, and I have just memories of it in the first week, uh, all the training that goes into getting ready for Grand Slam tennis different than your usual kind of week-to-week -week best two out of three, and you'll see guys kind of breaking down in a fifth set, losing at 6-1, 6-love, because the energy just isn't there. So you wonder, would we lose anything in terms of quality if we did actually make a transition to only playing uh, three of five uh, in the second week? I, I did want to just turn back to our Canadians for a moment. I, I mentioned Dennis Shapovalov in the quote, and I uh, should mention he played some great tennis in Dubai, had an opportunity to almost make the final, uh, instead got to the semifinals there, and is up to number 11 in the rankings. Felix Ojealiasim also had a nice week in Acapulco, pushed Stefano Tsitsipas in the quarterfinals. You know, these two guys, I, I know for you, Dennis, actually, when we spoke last, I, I believe you had penciled him in for your top 10 uh, last year, and then he did have a sniff at top 10 because he was there briefly, but then exited. Now he's getting close again. Uh, Felix number 17. Are these two guys maybe, you know, ready to take another step in terms of 
contending for titles, you know, below the majors, contending for your Masters 1000s. We've seen Dennis win once um, in Sweden. We've seen, seen Felix make a million finals and lose them. <laughs> but are, are they ready to, you know, make that leap forward? They're kind of that wave of generation that is pushing your Tsitsipas's, Medvedev's teams and, and winning titles. Uh Yes, they should be able to. Um, going back to your initial point about Dennis not being top 10, I mean, I was kind of robbed by this pandemic again. I think. You were. <laughs> surely, surely if they played the year out, he would yeah. have made it, right? That's what we all think here. I think most of our listeners or your listeners will agree with that statement. That mm-hmm. Dennis was uh, top 10 in reality. You know, Rogers shouldn't have been there, should he? I mean, that's nonsense. Um, but yeah, no, I, 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 I like them both. I think they're both really good players. I I would say I thought the upturn would have been a little bit more. I kind of thought Felix would really be knocking on the top 10 door right now. I'm hoping he does get there by the end of the year. Um, and I, I mean that in, in terms of, you know, I'm not, not having a go at him or anything. I just thought given the kind of form he'd shown in his younger career years about like turning up to big finals and winning them, you know, that hasn't quite translated onto the men's tour. I mean, he's, if you look at the list of guys he's lost to in finals, you know, I'd say you'd be quite surprised. Like you'd pick him to win at least 50% of them. Yeah. Um, I don't think that's unfair to say. So, you know, there's, uh, hopefully that's not becoming like a big mental problem. Um, but, you know, even Dennis the last few weeks, I've seen, uh, I think I was watching it was him against Taylor Fritz and, you know, he played an amazing first set, you know, serving out of this world, looked in total control, clawed his way back in that third set. And, I, you know, just in that moment, you're like, he's going to win this. He's put himself in the position now. Fritz is wobbling. He's going to come back and win this. This is another sign of his maturity. And then as soon as he breaks back, it's just that slip again. I don't know. I just, both of them, I've a little bit, uh, I'm emphasizing a little bit because they are both obviously doing pretty well but just because of the high standards of what I think they both can do. Yeah. I think there's a few matches they should be winning that they aren't right now. And that, that that's all it takes to change being a top 10 player, which is winning more of those matches you shouldn't lose. Um, and at the minute, both of them are just slightly falling short on that front from me. Um, that said, I'm pretty confident Dennis will be top 10 again this year. I'd put my hat on that quite comfortably. I think he's, really improve that serve I think it's become a serious weapon um particularly that left serve out wide into the ad side um that's a, a strong play against most players um and as I mentioned in that match against Fritz you know the way he served in that first set if he can bring even 75 percent of that level on a consistent basis he, he's not going to be losing his serve too often um Felix again there's everything in this guy's game. You know, I've said this to you guys before, you know, there's, there's the sky should be the limit for him. It just, I don't know. There were just, even that character match, right? The Australian Open earlier mm-hmm. this year, you know, up two sets of love. We're talking about character being a big story. I mean, Felix shouldn't be losing that match from that position. I know character did play well, but, you know, I was always told when I played tennis when I was younger, if you've got your hand around their throat, you squeeze harder, you don't let go. And it felt mm-hmm. to me like he, just eased off for a second, gave this guy a little bit of hope, feels like he's going for a straight set to win. And then, you know, if you look at how that draw opened up, that should have been Felix in the semi-final of a slam. And that, that, you know what I mean? That's the, that's the sort of moment that does really matter. And both of them at slams 
there's there's more that can come. And I, I think it will. I think it will. I don't I don't want to end on a negative note against the Canadians here because you know how much <laughs> I love you guys. But um, yeah, I've got a minor layer of disappointment with both of them at the moment, but I'm, I'm confident they'll come through that. I think that's a, a fair assessment of both of our young Canadian talents there on the men's side. And uh, you said definitely enough positive stuff to warrant our listeners wanting you back again, George. So <laughs> you kind of straddled that line very, very delicately, but, uh, but you navigated it correctly, I think. Uh, before we let you go, George, uh, I did want to give a shout out to your own podcast, which is the Love Tennis Podcast. And I really enjoyed listening to you, uh, I think it was a couple years back when you were doing that pretty regularly. And then took a little time off from it. Uh, what can you share with our listeners in terms of what they can expect if they check out the Love Tennis podcast and what do you have planned in the coming weeks or months with it? So, yeah, I mean, in, in terms of the break, it, my, my poor co-host got made redundant and he, he was working at a radio show. And so that's where we were doing all the recording and producing and stuff. Um, well, that sounds familiar to me and Ben, actually. <laughs> normally we do that in his studio at Sportsnet. Mm-hmm. So it, it was just a bit of a case of, all right, we'll just put press pause on this until you sort out what you're going to do. You know, it's, it's something we enjoy doing. It's just for fun. Um, but yeah, we, we got it back going again and we've, we've got a, a British coach on board, a guy called Calvin Betton, um, who works with kind of futures level players in the UK. So we've got quite a good like technical insight and he's quite friendly in the British coaching scene. So we've, yeah, he's been a really good addition uh, on that side of things. Um, I, I think for your listeners, we're one of the main features we're uh, doing this year. We, we picked out some young players at the start of the year that we're kind of following um, specifically based on who we thought would have the highest rankings rise. And I obviously chose a Canadian. I took Leila Fernandez. Oh, oh very um, nice. Very know, timely. Looking, looking very so, good on your choice right now. Very good. I'm actually third at the minute, though. Really? So I am I'm losing, but this is I think this week was the start of the Leila Fernandez rise yeah. for me to to win this. Um, and the guy I took was uh, Lorenzo Massetti, who also had wow. a very good week. Yeah. So I, I I'm gonna I'm we're recording our podcast tonight and uh I'm I'm very excited to get on there and brag about how well my choices have done this. <laughs> well, I, I'm sure if uh, you're on the Love Tennis podcast bragging about Canadians, it is something our listeners definitely want to check out. Um, George, we always appreciate your time on Matchpoint Canada. Uh, thanks for always uh, making yourself available and enjoy your insight and analysis. And we'll have to have you back on again. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Cheers, George. You have been listening to Matchpoint Canada. We'll talk to you next time.